You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Captain Sean Newman. Today's topic is the 40th anniversary of the Wall Bombs Fire. The fire occurred on Ocean Avenue and Avenue Y in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, and it occurred on August 2nd, 1978. Because of this fire, all FDNY members are now taught from Proby School on the dangers of bowstring trust construction. But these lessons came at a terrible price. Six firefighters made the supreme sacrifice at the fire. 24 were on the roof that day and 12 fell into the hole and of course, six perished. Today we have retired Captain Howard Vinetsky, who has graciously agreed to be interviewed for this podcast. Captain Vinetsky was working in Rescue 2 the day of the fire. We're out of the studio today at Captain Vinetsky's home. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Before we get started talking about the fire, can you just tell me in 1978 how many years you had on the job and where you had worked? Okay, uh, I had in 1978, eight years on the job. I came on the job in uh, 1970 and uh, was assigned to uh, Ladder Company 933. So you were promoted from Great Jones Street and then you, then you went to then, work in yeah, Brooklyn? Then I, yeah, I uh, was promoted to lieutenant and then uh, they transferred me from uh, 33 and 9 over to uh, Brooklyn, the 5-7 Battalion. What brought you to the fire service? Do you come from uh, a long line of firefighters? That's a good question. Uh, first of all, I, I didn't want to go to college because I had enough of schooling. I wanted to do something else. So I decided to take the test for the job while I was still in the Army. And to my surprise, I got hired. And uh, the person that was most responsible for encouraging me actually to take the job was my dad. My dad was a retired firefighter as well. I'm curious to know what the FDNY knew about bowstring trust construction in the late 70s. And uh, if you had gone to any other fires with that construction before wall bombs. Okay, the first part of your question, there was nothing that was in text or there was no focus when you did a drill on that type of construction. It was just another building. All of us, even in the rescue, we knew about truss roofs. We knew about the configuration of them. We, we never realized how dangerous they really were. But uh, to answer the question, yeah, we were never schooled. There was no literature about it and no training manuals or anything. It was just another building, and you operated as you did in every other building. When did you and your company arrive at the wall bombs fire? The alarm came in. It was early in the morning. I'm not really sure what time. Uh, 1075 was transmitted by the companies at the wall bombs store initially. We heard a 1075. As soon as we heard 1075, we loaded up. We were out the door, driving down Ocean Avenue. The second alarm, whatever time the second alarm was transmitted, we were a block away. And uh, then once we got to Wallbaums, we got a spot in front of the building and uh, exited the rig and moved ourselves inside the building. What were conditions like when you arrived? Heavy smoke condition and uh, heavy fire condition in the rear of that particular building. But there was a construction crew that was working on the... Uh, 
would be the exposure four side of the building and we feel that's where the fire started it somehow got up into the mezzanine they had a mezzanine inside that store but the mezzanine was closer to the exposure four side of the building and that's where i initially went with my cam guy and uh, my irons guy we uh, went up the mezzanine to try to see what's going on we started pulling ceilings and then uh, conditions got really bad and we decided all right, we need to regroup down as fast as we came, and then uh, we got to the front of the store. It was a little, you could actually stay in the store at that point because it was contained in the rear, from my perspective. You know, we knew we had a heavy fire, and that was transmitted to the chief. But uh, again, yeah, we went to the mezzanine. Mezzanine started getting to be really untenable, exited that area, and made our way to the front of the building to regroup and to say, okay, what type of strategy are we doing as a, as a fire company? During my research, I came across the fact that there was uh, two ceilings in wall bombs. There was uh, a drop ceiling under the original tin ceiling. Yes. Did, did companies know at that time that they, were, that they were facing two ceilings? No, absolutely not. It was never, uh, actually it wasn't even transmitted on the radio during the operation. We only knew that when we, was, we started pulling the ceilings, and we saw that we had more than one ceiling, and in, in essence, that the ceiling that was lowest, or the first ceiling above this, the occupancy, was where the fire was, and we didn't have access to that. There was all sorts of tin, in, and we had to really uh, work very hard to open up the tin ceiling and get to the area where the fire was between that tin ceiling, like I said, and the uh, actual cockloft, because essentially that's where the fire was, most of the fire. I read somewhere that that tin ceiling was about 16 feet above the floor, which must have been very difficult to identify in a smoke condition and then to actually pull to get to the fire. Absolutely. Even when we went to the mezzanine and now you're up about a, a story or two, we had only a six foot hook with us, the standard equipment that we would take with us on any job and uh, we used, we were trying to open up the ceilings with a six foot hook which you you could hardly even touch the ceiling because it just didn't have that length somebody said uh, well let's bring in a 10 foot hooks and, or uh, even uh, a, a larger uh, hook than a 10 foot hook but you can't operate we couldn't operate with those because uh, our mission was to uh, make sure that we're going to get everybody out of there but we wanted to get to the seat of the fire and uh, Certainly the opportunity to do so with hand tools was impossible. Speaking of impossible, it must have been also impossible to gauge the severity of the fire when so much of it was covered up by the, by the, by the upper tin ceiling. That's absolutely true. We were able to uh, get, well, we didn't, but the truck that operated before we got there, they exited the, uh, the mezzanine, gave up that position, and nobody knows why, but... We came in, when the rescue came in, uh, we went up to the mezzanine thinking that maybe we can get a hand line to operate and uh, extinguish the fire. We didn't know that the fire had spread so much. At one point, it looked like they had knocked the fire down. One, there was just one small opening, how they made that. We did not do that. The company before us uh, actually got to make that small hole, I think because it was so high, the ceiling, the special tools that they brought in were such that you, when you started using them, you were spent. 
like within five minutes, you know, because it just, it's a heavy piece of equipment and uh, the smoke condition was was really heavy. And we decided, well, a different strategy is definitely called for. So again, we we backed out of that area and and assembled uh, at the front of the store to uh, reevaluate our strategy, what we're gonna do at that point. One thing I found about wall bombs was a Division 7 newsletter written by uh, Deputy Chief Jay Jonas two years ago. And something I found very interesting about this very comprehensive summary of the fire is that in the early stages um, of the fire, there were three burst links. And I don't hear or see burst links uh, too much anymore. Was that a big problem in the 70s? It was not a big problem. We had hose clamps, you know, the ones that you put on a, uh, a burst lens of hose, uh, so you don't have to shut it down and then pull that hose line out and replace it or whatever. We have that, that available to us, but as far as the frequency of uh, burst hose lines, back in the 70s when I worked, was of minimum frequency. I saw it maybe one or two times at the, the many jobs that I operated at. So uh, in answer to your question, no, it was not. I never heard that it was uh, led to a delayed firefighting operation, wall bombs. I just thought it was an odd thing to yeah. read about so many burst links. Yeah, honestly, it was, wasn't even transmitted over the radio to us that they had burst lengths and they had to shut down the hose line or whatever. We just went in knowing that uh, we had a fire. And uh, when we got there, we realized the extinguishing effort was going to be a big challenge for the guys on the interior. But as far as multiple burst lengths at that job, personally, I didn't see any. Uh, Captain, where were you when the collapse occurred? It was me, my can guy, and my irons guy. We were about four or five aisles into the store on the exposure for side of the building. So we were about midway into the building, so about halfway in, but more towards the exposure for side, because there are aisles. You know, when you go shopping in, in any, any uh, large supermarket, all those aisles was uh, the avenues by which you could take to get to the rear of the building. We went over about four or five of the aisles I'm not really sure. And then we were able to get about halfway down the aisle before other things occurred. For our listeners who are not familiar with FDNY nomenclature, exposure four would be the right side when facing the front of the building. That's correct. Did you know the collapse occurred? Was there a, a rush of air or intense heat? I read somewhere that certain members didn't even know it happened. Others weren't, weren't sure. We were inside the building, myself, again, the can and, and the irons guy, and we heard no noise. There was no rush of air. There was no indication that there was a collapse at all. And I realized that there was a collapse when I saw Tommy Valabona from Rescue 2 coming, walking down the aisle. He was the roof guy at that job from the rescue. Meaning he fell through. He fell through somehow past the area where the other guys died. So somehow he started walking back towards us. And when I saw him, he was bloodied on the head, all disoriented. And when I saw him, I said, where did you come from? 
you were supposed to be on the roof. Where'd you come from? He couldn't answer. So I, I asked one of the guys to escort him out of the building and what have you. And then we realized we have a collapse situation. And uh, again, just the smoke condition got more intense, not a fire condition from the uh, ground floor where we were. Just the smoke condition got heavier at that point, but we didn't realize that, the, that there was any collapse. There was no noise, and again, no rush of air, no other indication that we had a collapse situation. Did radio transmissions start coming in shortly after that? No. There were, that was another thing that uh, I didn't hear any transmission that said uh, that we have a collapse situation. Uh, I may have uh, been just uh, tied up in my thoughts about what I'm going to do with these guys now. There were you know, transmissions where when they said the guys were missing and what have you. There was no Maydays transmitted that I heard of. Um, uh, we didn't have the equipment that we have today where you can uh, just press that button and then you're, you know, they're going to find out where you are. Uh, but to make a long story short, he, uh, we had no indication at all from the interior that there was a major collapse in that building at all. After you found Firefighter Velbono and you had him escorted out, what did you do next? Okay, we assembled again towards the uh, front of the building. And then I said, we need to get to the rear. So there's got to be some other guys. So we went down the same aisle that we uh, met Tommy in and, and tried to make our way to the rear. We couldn't do that because there was so much debris in front of us. So we backed out to the point where we were able to go to where the registers are. You know, so it was a little space and then it had that little turn saw. So you go through that and uh, we went all the way to the exposure four side of the building and for some reason when there was a collapse it had pulled the freezers towards the build towards the interior of the building so there was a space now behind the freezers that you could use as a barrier to make your way to the front when the things came down from the roof the rule that roofing material a lot of that shelving that was uh, holding all the goods acted as a support for the, the roof that was still in place at that point. So we knew that at least we had some sort of protection in that regard. So we crawled down that side behind the freezers and got to the point where the firefighters who were killed, we could hear them, but we couldn't get to them because so much debris. And I told my chauffeur about that as well. So the effort was to try to get to the back as quickly as we could, but it was almost impossible. There's so much debris now. Um, and then I was concerned about all my other guys because I wasn't receiving any radio transmissions from uh, the guys that were not with me, the OV. And uh, the only other person was the chauffeur. So we were, um, again, just concerned with getting to the area where the guys were and trying to get them out of the building but uh, it was an impossibility at that point. That's when we decided, okay, a different tactic is, is merited at this point. So we left that area again to the front of the building, assembled over there, and then when we decided, well, the only way we're gonna make our way to get to these guys is to breach the wall on the exposure four side of the building. 
And that's, uh, I think that's obvious. There's so many pictures of guys opening up that wall. And we were right on the money. We were right where those guys were. Unfortunately, there was so much debris in front of us that it was impossible to grab them from the inside. You had to go from the outside, climb over the debris, and then get to the guys. You know, but we uh, definitively heard them from where we were. We must have been maybe 10 feet more if we can get you know another 10 feet into the building we may have been able to uh, actually put our hands on these guys and get them out but that was an impossibility similar to the uh, the tin ceiling and the uh, drop ceiling it appears that there was a similar phenomenon going on on the roof with the rain roof that was built over the original roof yes yes exactly exactly the roof, it had a really high truss to it, so um, the sides, the uh, awful exposure sides of the roof seemed like it would be safe and support your weight, but if you have some sort of intel or you see enough flames coming out from the roof level, and you know that the trusses, regardless of what type of trusses, Eventually, one of them are going to fail unless, you know, you hit it in its early stage, and that's going to cause a domino effect where other trusses will fail, and you'll have the same situation that we had over in uh, uh, Wallbounds that, that particular day. The taxpayer bulletin in firefighter procedures has gotten uh, quite comprehensive in the past uh, two or three decades. Oh, yeah. They give very detailed information on construction and commercial occupancies. There is no safe place on that roof. You don't belong there, and it's a commercial. It's of no value to us from a life-saving perspective because all probability everybody's gotten out. Should be a topic of training and that type of discussion with the firefighters on a regular basis. You know, we're not gonna be that aggressive in a building that has that type of construction. Not at all. Captain Vineski, what impact did wall bombs have on you for the rest of your career and how did it change you as a firefighter? The number one impact from my perspective that lasted throughout my entire career was safety, safety, safety. Everybody tries to become the guy that did it, okay, the guy that was able to knock the fire down, the guy that was able to grab somebody at the cost of hurting other guys, and what I should, and not purposely, only because they're opening a door they shouldn't open, or went down a particular area of the building where they should not have been, or what have you. So what I'm trying to say is, safety first, and that safety first is you. Use the equipment that you have to your advantage. It keeps you safe. You'll be able to operate more effectively with that equipment, even though it's very taxing, but it's so necessary. And be cognizant of what you're breathing and understand that it's there for your protection, meaning your masks should be used very effectively by wearing all of it and having it on you correctly and what have you. But as far as the impact that the wall bombs had on me during the years after I operated at that job, the number one thing I, I would stress is safety first of the firefighter. You know, yeah, it's a dangerous job. Yeah, we all know that it's a dangerous job. But there are things that you can do to protect yourself. You need to implement them as a firefighter. Captain Vinetsky, thank you very much for uh, giving us your insights about the Wall Bombs fire and uh, your perspective on safety 
in uh, modern firefighting. We really appreciate it, and these lessons will mean a lot to today's firefighters. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Captain Sean Newman. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year, and when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.